I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be looking at passages in all four of the Gospel accounts. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So today we're reading Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41 down through chapter 23, verse 39. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 41 down through chapter 21, verse 4. And John chapter 12, verses 20 through 43. So today, here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. Jesus is in and around Jerusalem, and these events take place during the week preceding his crucifixion. We'll begin by reading Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, and Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44. Jesus continues his verbal duel with the Pharisees, and now it's his turn to ask a hard question. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Now over to Mark's account, Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now Luke's account, beginning in Luke chapter 20, verse 41. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? This confrontation between the Jewish leadership and Jesus began back in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, Mark 12, 13, and uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 20. That's when they sought to verbally trap Jesus in front of his disciples. In order to understand this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's important to know that Christ here is the Greek word for Messiah. While the Pharisees are still gathered, Jesus fires a question at them unlike any that they probably ever considered. They were well aware of the anticipated Messiah's ancestry based upon Old Testament scripture. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, also Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23. Many Jewish scholars, but not all, but most in Jesus' day regarded Psalm 110 to be messianic. So this question's for them. So how do you explain the words of King David in Psalm 10, verse 1? 
It says there, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus then asked them in Matthew twenty-two forty-five, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, this sums up the scriptural dilemma faced by those Pharisees. How could the Messiah be the descendant of King David and also at the same time be his Lord? Well, the answer is it's the supernatural act of God fulfilled in Jesus himself. And that put a stop to the questions. So then we see in the continuation that Jesus issues some very harsh words to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 39, paralleled by Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, and Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. Now, Matthew has a lengthy account. Mark and Luke, their accounts are shorter. So beginning with Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say, and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by this temple it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. 
Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpent, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now over to Mark's shorter account, beginning with Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation." And now over to Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 45. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Well, you must agree, Jesus really unleashes on the scribes and Pharisees on this occasion, perhaps his biggest criticism of their hypocrisy ever. Mark and Luke just give an overview of this verbal assault against these hypocrites, but Matthew devotes 36 verses to it. All three synoptic gospels have the phrase, will receive greater condemnation. Matthew, however, does a greater coverage of Jesus' words to really drive the point home about these serpents in verse 33. In verse 2, he points out that these Jewish leaders have placed themselves on the level with Moses, but they don't even observe the very commands that they issue. They love the praise they get for appearing righteous, thus they apparently wore their phylacteries all the time. These phylacteries were wallets worn on the wrist and around the forehead. These contain the Old Testament passages of Scripture known as the Shema. That's seen in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-9. through 9. These scripture passages, the one just mentioned in Deuteronomy, also Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 21, and Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. These were, and still are, ceremonially written by a special rabbi tradesman and placed inside these wallets. 
The Jewish term of the Old Testament and today for these Jewish wallets is the tefillin. Today's Orthodox Jews just wear them during their prayer times. The whole concept is based upon their understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, which says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. The Pharisees apparently liked how holy they looked when they wore these phylacteries, so they just wore them all the time. Now, the borders of their garments, the quotation there, is a significant term in verse 5 as well. The practice arises from Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. This ancient fashion statement is still the rage. Orthodox Jews are still adamant about observing this law even today. The Hebrew word for fringe or border is zitzit, and that's what today's Jews actually call it. As a matter of fact, this law is particularly significant in light of the two occasions where the people just wanted to touch the zitzit, of Jesus' garment, that's in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, and again in Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. This fringe from the garment was considered very sacred. After all, it was decreed by God himself to be worn. Obviously, these Pharisees and scribes had enlarged beyond the common practice, this zitzit, in order to appear to be more holy than others. I guess they felt that clothes make the man. These Jewish leaders just love the glory of being regarded as holy men in the sight of the everyday Jew. In Matthew 23, verses 6 through 12, Jesus addresses their excessive desire for recognition by insisting on being addressed as rabbi or teacher. These were unmerited titles of recognition they arbitrarily bestowed upon one another that were not based upon objective criteria. To them, it was a you-scratch-my-back-and-I'll-scratch-yours type of proposition. I'm quite certain that these Pharisees keyed in on Jesus' words of verse 10, which says, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And exactly who is this Christ, meaning Messiah? Well, Jesus himself, of course. Two different words are used here in this discussion. The word rabbi is a transliteration of the Greek, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew Aramaic word, and that denotes an official title of honor. And in the same discussion here, the word teacher comes from the Greek word kathegetes, that means master or master teacher. It kind of reminds me of those I've met in my lifetime who insist on being called doctor when people address them. Then Jesus issues a series of woes on these people, these Pharisees, these scribes. This word woe is a transliteration from the Greek word pronounced nearly the same way, and it's an expression of intense grief. Now look at the woes that he pronounces here against the scribes and Pharisees in this chapter. Verse 13, he says, Woe to you because you lead people away from God. And in verse 14, you exploit widows for your own gain. Verse 15, you work hard to proselyte people to yourselves, but not to God. Verse 16, you've abused the concept of making an oath. Verse 23, woe to you, for you emphasize tithing and ignore spiritual attributes. And you're clean on the outside in verse 25, but dirty on the inside. Verse 27, you look beautiful on the outside, but are full of dead men's bones on the inside. And verse 29, Woe to you, because you seem to respect the Old Testament prophets, but had you lived during their day, you would have been among those who persecuted them. Well, there was nothing good said about these Jewish leaders. Even their prayers were corrupt when Jesus says in verse 14, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So what did Jesus really think of these highly esteemed Jewish leaders? Well, he sums it up in verse 33 when he concludes, Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus issues his condemnation on these people in verses 37 through 39 as he laments over Jerusalem. Now, don't think for a moment that these Pharisees were good men simply because their faith seemed to exceed that of the Sadducees. Jesus literally pronounces them as worthy of hell in this passage. Jesus mentions a couple of murders in the Old Testament, the first one being Abel, and the last one recorded in Chronicles is Zacharias. He references the death of Abel at the hand of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, with Zacharias, or Zechariah, who was slain by Judah's King Joash back in 2 Kings chapter 12 and 2 Chronicles 24. In other words, Jesus covers the Old Testament period when righteous people were slain by wicked people. This is not the first time Jesus made this point. He had done so earlier in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 through 50. And what exactly is the point Jesus is making here? Well, it's introduced in verse 30. It says, And say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. In other words, Jesus goes on to emphasize in verses 31 through 38 that these Pharisees are exactly the kind of wicked men that persecuted and killed the prophets of old. Matthew chapter 23, verse 38 has particular significance when Jesus says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus pulls together two prophetic passages of Scripture to make his point here. The first is drawn from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, which says, but if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. In that passage, Jeremiah is prophesying the fall of the house of Judah to the Babylonians. That fall was finalized with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. By that time, through Jesus' day, Israel had been subservient to other nations. Since that time, they had been looking for a Messiah, and that leads us to verse 39. Matthew 23:39 has particular significance when Jesus says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quotation from Psalm 118:26. That verse specifically says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, the phrase name of the Lord in that passage is the special name for the God of the Jews, Jehovah, also known as Yahweh. After the resurrection of Jesus, the authentication of Jesus as the Messiah will be complete. Jesus is Jehovah. Incidentally, Jesus again quotes from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, and Psalm 118, 26, in Luke chapter 13, verse 35. Then Mark and Luke record Jesus commenting on the widow's might in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, and Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. First, Mark 12, beginning with verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quatrains. 
So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now Luke's account in Luke 21, beginning with verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Jesus here commends the widow who gave all, as opposed to the rich who gave just a portion. Her contribution was two mites, defined here as being equivalent to a farthing in the King James Version or as a quadrants in the New King James Version. They both come from the same Greek word. In Roman coinage, we're told that 64 farthings or quadrants are equivalent to a Roman denarion. We see in Matthew chapter 20, verse 2, that laborers were paid one denarion per day to work in the vineyard. Therefore, you can see that two mites was a mighty small, (laughs) pun intended, mighty small offering in the context of usefulness. However, for the widow, Jesus says it was huge. Now let's move over to John's gospel, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20 down through verse 22, where we see the appearance of some Greeks. Verse 20, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, it'd be easy to pass over these verses with little notice, but my impression is that this little verbal exchange sets the stage for Jesus' discourse in the next verses, verses 23 through 50. Understand the setting. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem in a royal style, which was fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy as he went. And we see that as a triumphal entry in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 10, Luke 19, 29 through 40, and John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, all four gospels. The common people in Jerusalem, they've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. They're ready for him to begin ruling. Since the Messianic rule prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament is a worldwide rule, naturally these Greeks are interested in knowing where exactly they fit into the program. Now the passage doesn't suggest that they're Jewish proselytes, so it would appear that they've come to meet with the Messiah to get some details on this Messianic rule. So Jesus sets the record straight beginning in verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor." Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. 
Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, if context means anything here, and I'm certainly thinking that it does, Jesus is responding to the request of these Gentiles to meet with him. Jesus sets the record straight in verses 23 to 28 when he proclaims that he has not come to reign at this point in time, but he's come to die. Reigning comes later. These words regarding his imminent crucifixion are confirmed by a voice from heaven validating what Jesus has just spoken, a voice which sounded like thunder to some and perceived by others to be an angel speaking to Jesus. After the voice from heaven, Jesus goes on to even greater specifics about his purpose here. He again prophesies his death on the cross in verses 31 through 33. Notice Jesus' reference to Satan in verse 31 when he says, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Literally, the death of Jesus and subsequent resurrection will be a tremendous setback to Satan as he, Satan, attempts to thwart God's plan of redemption. It's interesting that the Jews had sought to stone Jesus on several occasions, but here he prophesies his death on the cross in verses 32 and 33. The people understood that this was a prophecy of his death as well when they replied to Jesus in verse 34, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now this is a great turning point for the people. The man they had just welcomed into Jerusalem as royalty is now proclaiming that he's come to Jerusalem to die. What's the deal here? It's time to invoke the suffering prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah chapter 53, 1 is quoted here in verse 38. The remainder of Isaiah 53 prophesies the suffering of the Messiah prior to his rule over the earth. However, the people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem were hearsay theologians. Most of them only knew what they'd been told by the well-studied in their synagogues. So then, what about the well-studied people? Well, in verses 39 to 41, John alludes to another of Isaiah's prophecies, which is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. 
Isaiah's audience had hearts that were hardened by sin, and so did this audience of Jesus. Verse 42 is very telling regarding these people when it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So the stage is set for the crucifixion. The Jewish leaders apparently understood the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the necessary crucifixion of the Messiah, but their own selfish interests kept them from believing on Jesus. The common people here did not seem to have information regarding the course of the Messiah, that he must suffer first. This session continues in chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, and we'll look at those verses in four days. Jesus is very clear in verse 48 in that passage when he says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words as that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And as I said, we'll look at those verses in four days. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.